morning we're opening a new series of messages from the Old Testament Minor Prophet Book of Jonah. And so if you've got a Bible with you, you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be uh, today and for the next several Sundays as we work our way through uh, this small story here embedded in the life of the Old Testament. Uh, Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning, verses 1 to 3. But before we read the text together, I'll just give you just a little bit of info about Jonah. It's among one of the, the collection of books in the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. The reason they're called minor is not because they are less important than the messages that come from the major prophets, but because they're shorter than the major prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Jonah is about 75% narrative, while most of the other prophetic material we have in the Old Testament is a lot of poetry and prophecy that's being delivered. The book of Jonah reads less like a collection of poems and prophecy and more like a novel. In fact, the only prophetic utterance in the book is only eight words long, um, and it's not a very hopeful one uh, whenever Jonah actually does arrive in Nineveh. And oftentimes when we come to the book of Jonah, we're tempted to write it off as nothing more than some fanciful children's story with felt boards and whales and fish and all those kinds of things. But the more that we press into the message of the book of Jonah, the more that we're going to come to a realization that you and I are more like Jonah than we ever care to admit. And so over the course of these next couple of months together, we're going to be pressing into the message here to consider what the Lord has to say to us as a church, His people, today through this story that was recorded several centuries or numbers of centuries ago. So Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 3 together this morning. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy in front of you as we read it together. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is God's Word. Now this message this week, I'd like to title it, Running from Our past running from our past now oftentimes whenever we hear that terminology maybe in movies uh, whenever the maybe one of the lead characters is running from their past right all their past decisions their past choices are catching up with them and so right all these people that they've wronged all these people that they've cheated all these people that they've embezzled from are finally coming to right uh exact their revenge or to take back what is rightfully theirs. Oftentimes when we think about running from our past, we think about running from all the mistakes, all the failures, all the sins that we've committed in our past. And yet when we encounter Jonah, when we crack open the book of Jonah, we find a prophet not running from all the bad things that he's done in his past, but running from all of the good, running from his usefulness, his faithfulness, to the purposes of God, the privileges he enjoyed as a prophet of the Most High God who had the privilege of speaking utterances such as that would be prefaced with these words, thus says the Lord. Jonah's running away from all of that. In fact, the first thing we encounter in the book of Jonah is a man, the, the man whose name the book bears. And the first thing that we learn about him as we, and, and as we look at what else the Bible has to teach us about Jonah is that he's a man who's fallen so far from who and where he once was. 
And listen, church, this ought to be a striking lesson to us. And I've got one point and one point only for us this morning as we take a look at this passage together. doesn't mean the sermon's going to be short. It just means there's one point, okay? All right? But the one point that I want us to consider from this passage together this morning is this, is that past performance is no substitute for present obedience. Past performance is no substitute for present obedience. Obedience. In other words, no matter what your former record might be, it's no replacement for walking in obedience to the Lord in the present. Now to see this, we need to understand a little bit about the prophet who's at the center of this story that we're going to be considering over these next four chapters. The very first word in the book of Jonah that's translated in our English Bibles, in many of your translations, is this word, now. Now. And where this word shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament, almost exclusively, it shows up to continue a story that's already in progress. Okay, so in other words, the readers, the original audience, is already familiar with the plot line. They're already familiar with the characters who are central to the story. And then the writer goes on to say, in the middle of the story, and now it happened that. Or now it occurred, or now it came about. So it assumes at the very beginning of the book, from the first word of the book of Jonah, that the readers of Jonah had some knowledge of who Jonah was. They had some knowledge of the main player in this book. They're already to some degree right, familiar with Jonah's pedigree, with his past performance, with who he had been. So where else does the Bible tell us about Jonah? What did the original readers of the book of Jonah know about Jonah upon which everything else they would read in these four chapters would be built? Now, the only other place that Jonah is mentioned in the Old Testament is in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And from that reference, the original readers would have known several things about Jonah. First of all, they would have known that Jonah was an Israelite prophet who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who reigned in Israel from 793 to 756 B.C. Jeroboam II was not a good dude. Okay? He, was, he did what was, the Bible tells us, he did what was evil on the side of the Lord and led Israel to commit sin against her God. But Jonah was a prophet in the midst of those days in Israel. The second thing they would have known about Jonah was that he was a faithful and true prophet because the words that he prophesied, the words that he spoke that the Lord had given him actually came to pass. It was one of the tests of a faithful prophet, of a true prophet. Did what they prophesied actually come to pass? And Jonah passes that test. God uses Jonah to forecast the future expansion of the boundaries and borders of Israel. And despite the evil of the king and the disobedience of the people of Israel, God is merciful to them and expands their boundaries. We read about that in 2 Kings 14. I'll read it to you from starting in verse 23. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of his father Jeroboam, right, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Verse 25, he restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. 
For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free. And there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had said He would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So despite the king's rebellion against God, and despite leading the people to continue to sin against God, God is gracious and He's merciful to His people, expands the boundaries, fulfills His word, because He had promised not to blot the name of Israel out from among the nations. So the people who read Jonah would have known that Jonah was associated with the mercy and grace of God because God had been merciful and gracious to His people despite their sin and rebellion. Furthermore, they would have known that Jonah would have enjoyed the privilege of fellowship with God as one of God's prophets. Now for an Old Testament prophet to speak with the authority of thus says the Lord, we don't have that any longer. But for an Old Testament prophet to say, thus says the Lord, they must have enjoyed this unique fellowship with God where the Spirit of God filled them. They received revelation from God and they reported it to God's people. They delivered it to Israel. In fact, the book of Amos tells us in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. So before God carries out His purposes and enacts His plans, He reveals it to His prophets so that the prophets could pass it on to God's people. Right? So they had this fellowship with God where they were receiving revelation from God, this, this, this intimacy with God in which God was speaking to them words that they were to speak to God's people. The prophets enjoyed that. So the people who read Jonah would have known about this fellowship that, that Jonah would have had with God as one of his prophets. Moreover, they would have understood that Jonah enjoyed the privilege of service to God as well. The privilege of service to God as well. Because in 2 Kings 14, Jonah is referred to as God's servant who spoke his words. He served the Lord faithfully and truly in the midst of evil days in which the highest leaders in the land had rejected God, rebelled against God, and the people followed suit. And yet God had been merciful. God had been gracious. However, whenever we meet Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, he is a shell of the man he had once been. When we meet Jonah here, despite seeing and receiving the mercy and grace of God Himself, being a beneficiary of it and beholding it, working for the sake of the entire nation, he doesn't want it extended to others, namely his enemies. If you turn to the end of the book, you'll see exactly why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want God to be merciful to those dirty Assyrians. He didn't want them to receive the same mercy and grace that he and the people of Israel had been beneficiaries of themselves. See, Jonah was ministering during a time in which the Assyrian Empire was rising on the global stage and they were expanding their reach and their influence and their borders and their boundaries. But the Assyrians themselves were not nice people. They weren't, they weren't a bunch of Boy Scouts living in Nineveh. Okay? In fact, we're told even in the Old Testament about the evil of this people. The prophet Zephaniah writes about Assyria in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 15. And he says, this is the exultant city, speaking of Nineveh, that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. In other words, Nineveh said, I am 
which is what God claimed He was in the Old Testament. He is, not Nineveh. And, he, and the, the people of Nineveh said, listen, we are self-sufficient. We don't need anyone other than ourselves. In fact, one Jewish historian said it this way about the, about the Assyrians. He said the Assyrians were, and they were known for this in the ancient world, they were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were, pity, they, they were the pitiless, power-crazed foe. They showed no quarter in battle, uprooting entire peoples in their fury for conquest. They extinguished the northern kingdom of Israel. So for Jonah, Nineveh then was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. And one of the commentators said, for Jonah to go to Nineveh meant to go to hell. When they would conquer their enemies in battle, they would lead them away many times by, by hooking them with fish hooks and dragging them away into captivity. So Jonah knew that if God was merciful to the Assyrians, it would only be a matter of time before they would overthrow Israel. And sure enough, they do in 732 B.C. When we meet Jonah, he had seen, beheld God's mercy, benefited from God's mercy, but he doesn't want it extended to the Assyrians. When we meet Jonah here, despite enjoying intimacy and fellowship with the Lord, what do we find him doing? He's running away, fleeing from God's presence. A shell of the man that he once was. We might say it this way in our day and time that he's quenching the Spirit of God in his life at that moment, in present day. When we meet Jonah here, despite his former service to the Lord, mentioned in First Kings or Second Kings, he's rejecting God's commission for him in the present time. Because we're told in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And that, that's a, basically a technical term in the Old Testament prophets for referring to God's commissioning of His prophet to fulfill His purpose and service. I could take you all kinds of places in the Old Testament to show you, but I'll show you one. In Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, Jeremiah writes these words. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold, I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth, for to, to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord." And the Lord put, his hand on, and, uh, put out His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord came to me. And the author of Jonah says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And we find that phrase over and over in the prophets to commission those individuals for God's service. And yet, whenever Jonah is drafted by the Lord, he dodges and runs to Canada. Despite his former service to God, despite his former fellowship with God, despite his former benefits and beholding of the mercy of God. This is the man that he is when we meet him in Jonah. One who had been a faithful and true prophet, now unfaithful and disobedient. One who had been associated with God's mercy and grace. 
was repulsed by the idea that God would be merciful and gracious to the Assyrians. One who had known intimacy and fellowship with the Lord, receiving revelation from Him, is now fleeing from God's presence. What we see about Jonah is that though, although his past is decorated, his present is dreadful. Now listen. Let me see if I can break it down for you like this. That's kind of heavy, right? Back in 2007, the Raiders, who were playing in Oakland at the time, right before they moved to Las Vegas, the Raiders had been woeful for a number of years, and they had the number one draft pick in the NFL draft. And they used that number one draft pick in 2007 in the NFL draft to draft a quarterback out of Louisiana State University named Jamarcus Russell. Now, Jamarcus Russell had a stellar collegiate career. He was a man among boys on the football field in college. Literally. His stature was such. His physical, he was physically imposing. He looked like a defensive end, not a quarterback. That's how big the guy was. And so whenever you had safeties who were blitzing or defensive ends who burst through the offensive line to try to tackle him in the backfield, oftentimes it was like they were just bouncing off the guy because he's so big. Right? And so he stands back there in the pocket and dissects the defense down the field completing passes in college because nobody can bring him down. He got sacked very rarely in college. So he had a stellar, he had a massive arm. He could throw the ball, air it out 60, 70 yards in the air. He's this massive individual. And so he gets drafted first, gets this massive signing bonus, and shows up, well, he doesn't show up to training camp because he holds out for a, 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 a contract dispute in order that they might pay him more money than what they had promised him whenever they drafted him. They eventually pay him the cash, and so he shows up at practice, and by all accounts, this man among boys in college who had all the physical tools to play quarterback in the NFL had a sloppy work ethic. So he walks into the NFL training facility for the Oakland Raiders and he doesn't put in the work. Did he have a vision to be an NFL quarterback? Absolutely. Did he have the tools to be an NFL quarterback? Absolutely. But what Jamarcus Russell did was he got paid on the basis of his past performance. His past was decorated with awards, but his present was dreadful because he refused to continue to put in the effort to excel, to grow, to become who he needed to be, to, 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 to play at that stage. Like Jonah, his past was decorated, his present was dreadful. And listen, church, if we were to be honest with ourselves this morning, I wonder how many of us would say the same thing. I wonder. I've had to face, listen, you think, yeah. you think sitting under a sermon like this is hard. Try preparing a sermon like this. And let it try to run through you all week long. But are all of our memories of intimacy and fellowship with the Lord through prayer, through His Word, in, in the fellowship with His church, are they distant specks in the rearview mirror of our lives? 
Are our stories of usefulness in God's service, are they all pre-COVID? Are they all pre-empty nest? Are they all pre-children in the home? Are they all pre-marriage? When we look back on, the, on, on the, what lies behind us, do we remember those days of intimacy with God and service to God? But when we look in the present, we find that that intimacy has dried up and that our service and usefulness will no longer have our hands on the plow. Are our stories of God's grace and mercy, are they all in the past and centered on ourselves rather than presently centered on others who need to hear about the steadfast love of the Lord in Jesus Christ? Is God working in and through us now to reconcile people to Himself, even people who are far from Him who may hate us today? I wonder how many of us as Christians have have adopted the mindset of I've put in my years, I've paid my dues, and I've punched the clock for the last time. I've retired from walking with God. I've retired from serving God. I've retired from showing mercy and grace to those who need it. This week I began to think about just, just questions. Like where are the older men like Caleb in their generation? Whenever Israel comes into the land of promise, you know what Caleb does? Caleb's 85. Okay? And he's not hobbling around. He's 85. I knew a guy like that one time. Right, he was still unloading furniture trucks at like 78. And he was outpacing all of us in college. Okay? But he's 85, and he comes to Joshua, and he says, Joshua, do you remember the word that God spoke to us through Moses about you and I being the ones who would come in because we believed the promise of God that He would fight for us and go before us. And he says, listen, I'm still as vigorous as I was then, so give me the hill country with all the fortified cities where people don't dare to go. He says, give me that territory because I believe the Lord will be with me. Where are the men like that in their generation? Where are the women like Anna in Luke chapter 2 who's 84 years old who are fasting and praying while they wait for God to come and to redeem His people? They're crying out to the Lord day in and day out in fellowship and in intimacy with God. Where are the Christian men and women who are willing to dream big things of God in their last decade or two of life? Where are the young men like Joshua in their generation who drew a line in the sand and said, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Or the young women like Hannah in their generation who are on their knees in prayer day after day in tears for God to answer. Or like Mary who said, be it done unto me. Be it done unto me. As you say, for I am the Lord's servant. Or young men like Peter who are zealous to serve the Lord. And even though you've got to come and clean up a few bloody messes behind them because they've cut off some ears and done some things, right? They have a zeal to serve God in their day. Where are the young men and young women who are willing to dream big things of God in the midst of their busy schedules? 
who are willing not to overschedule and overextend themselves so that they have bandwidth and margin to serve God in ways and connect with God in ways that they could not if they were overscheduling themselves and overscheduling their children. We're the middle-aged men and women who have their eye on being a part of God's redemptive purposes in this community through this church. There is no retirement party from fellowship with the Lord or service to God. And Jonah teaches us that past performance is no substitute for present obedience. So how then? How then do we walk in obedience in the present? I'll give you one thing this morning. And that is this. It's to tenderize your heart with the gospel. Now, I don't know if you like steaks or you like good meat, but I, I enjoy a good steak every once in a while. Um, I say every once in a while because my budget won't allow them for, the, for them uh, very frequently, but I do enjoy them. Uh, and there's all different kinds of cuts of meat, right? But some cuts of meat are tougher than others. And if you get a tough cut of meat, there's several things you can do in order to help tenderize it, right? You can buy a tenderizing solution, which oftentimes is a mixture of salt and sugar that you sprinkle onto the meat, and you allow it to set there, allow it to come into contact with the meat. And as it comes in contact with the meat, it begins to break down certain things at molecular levels that begin to get in there and to begin to soften up and tenderize that meat. Or you can buy one of those big mallets, Right, and you can take that mallet and you can pound the meat with it. Right? And as you pound the meat, it's, what's it doing? It's separating some of those larger pieces that are connected together and softening them, pulling them apart so it's easier for, for you to chew. But you can tenderize it in a variety of different ways. And listen, church, if our hearts are not tended well over the course of time, one of the things that is the natural tendency of our hearts is to get tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher. Which is why they need to be tenderized with the good news of the gospel. Or else we find ourselves looking in the rearview mirror like Jonah, seeing all the past fellowship we had with God, all the past usefulness that we had in the hands of God, all the past ways God had extended mercy and grace to us and prompted us to extend it to others. And we see all that in the rearview, but none of that through the windshield in our lives. If our hearts are not tender, and the only thing that can tenderize my heart, the only thing that can tenderize your heart, listen, I wish there was a, a, a solution we could go buy at the store and just pour on it, right? That would be really, really lucrative. And none of you wants to go home and take a hammer and start beating yourself in the head, right? So the only thing to tenderize our hearts is the gospel. Because where Jonah fails and where you and I fail, Jesus succeeds. He succeeds, church. See, when Jesus, let me point you to one place. When Jesus comes into the Garden of Gethsemane, let me ask you a question. If you've read the Gospel accounts, you would know that is not the first time that Jesus 
draws into a solitary, quiet place to come before His Father in prayer. Because Jesus did that often throughout His earthly ministry. Where He would leave the disciples, He would leave the crowds, and He would draw aside to spend time fasting and praying before the Father. And yet whenever Jesus is facing the cross, knowing what lies before Him, Jesus doesn't rely on all the other occasions in the past in which He had come to the Father to enjoy intimacy and fellowship, to bring up petitions and prayers. He doesn't go, well, I prayed a couple of months ago. Right? What does He do? He takes disciples, leaves nine of them in one location, three of them in another location, then He goes in further and he spends the evening crying out to God because for Jesus past performance past prayer past fellowship past obedience was no substitute for his dependence upon the father in the present and where Jonah failed Jesus succeeds What about all of Jesus' past service to God throughout the course of His earthly ministry? Whenever it comes time to serve us in the way that only He could by stretching His arms on the cross, the, the crown of thorns upon His brow, Jesus doesn't look back and say, well, listen, I did all of those things back there. Surely that's good. But Jesus, to this very end, continues to walk in obedience, faithfulness, usefulness, and service to God and to me and to you. Listen, church, that, when you see Jesus pressing in with the Lord in fellowship and intimacy, when you see Jesus serving His Father and serving His brothers and sisters all the way to the cross. That is the only thing that can tenderize your heart. right? we, We could talk about all kinds of practical little applications of things that you can write on your dashboard and things you can post on your mirror. But listen, unless you're coming face to face with the person of Jesus Christ on a regular basis and allowing His work for you to tenderize your heart, then you end up like Jonah fleeing from the presence of God, no longer useful in His hands. With your heart hardened toward those that He wants to be merciful towards. Past performance is no substitute for present obedience. And if we're going to be obedient in the present, we've got to tenderize our hearts. That's a part of what we come to do this morning as we come to receive the Lord's table together. In just a moment, the band's going to come. They're going to lead us in song. And as they do, and as we come to the Lord's table to receive the bread and the cup, to remember the body of Jesus that was broken for us, to remember the blood of Jesus which was shed for us, the new covenant that Jesus speaks of in His own blood, I would encourage you 
before you come to the table or as you come to the table and take of the bread and the cup, might you ask the Lord to search your own heart? For whether or not you are substituting past performance for present obedience in your fellowship with the Lord, in your service to the Lord, and in your extension of mercy and grace to those who are in desperate need of a Savior. And if He pricks, or pokes, or places His finger somewhere, that you would acknowledge that and confess it, repent from it, and come to the table remembering God's forgiveness that was afforded to you through the person and work of Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, I just invite you to stay where you are. And watch as we come to the table and receive the bread and the cup. But we do want you to continue to come. And hear about Jesus week in and week out. Because one of the things we're going to see even throughout the book of Jonah is that every time Jonah fails, Jesus succeeds. With the hopes that one day that you would hear about Jesus and that the Holy Spirit would come and He would light the flame in your own heart bringing you to life from the dead, and that you could join us at the table as well to rejoice in and remember the broken body and shed blood of Christ. So I'm going to pray for us, and as I do, the band's going to come. They're going to receive the elements. they, They can go ahead and move now to come and receive the bread and the cup, and they're going to come on stage and lead us in song as we respond to what the Lord has said. And as you pray, as you pray, Asking the Lord to search your heart, we invite you to come and receive the bread and cup this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for today. Another day in which we may enjoy your mercies that are new every morning. Another day in which we may be mindful of your work in our lives. Another day in which you might progressively form us into the image of your Son. Father, I pray for all of us this morning who have considered your word to us. I pray that you would search our hearts, that you would reveal to us if we're trying to substitute a decorated past for obedience in the present. Father, where there is sin to be confessed, I pray that we would, that we would not only confess, but we would turn from it and we would find Christ to embrace us with open arms. Even as they were stretched wide on the cross for us. As we come to receive the bread and the cup this morning, may it not be just a rote ritual that we participate in, but may it renew intimacy and fellowship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as the band leads us in song this morning in response to what God has said and as the Lord